What's better than Anchor's podcast creation tools? Nothing. Mankind has always searched for evidence of God's perfection, and we found it. Anchor is the easiest way to make a podcast. Anchor gives you everything you need in one place for free, which you can use straight from your phone or computer. The creation tools allow you to record and edit your podcast so it sounds great. They'll distribute your podcast for you so it can be heard everywhere. Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and the lesser of the podcast platforms like Stitcher. You can easily make money from your podcast with no minimum listenership. I've made $5, and I've been doing this for three months. So, download the Anchor app or go to anchor.fm to get started. Guys, I don't leave the house very much. And that's not by choice. That's because the place that I work is doing construction in the area that we all had our cubes at, and now we're all told to work from home. It means I have a lot of free time, because when you're at home, you promise yourself that you'll be super productive, and you're not. Uh, People tell themselves that stuff all the time, and it never happens, and that's what's happening with me. Uh, I do laundry, and I don't even finish the laundry. I wake up in the morning thinking I'm going to take advantage of this, I'm going to do laundry, Uh, I'm going to do my meetings... Uh, on the headset while I'm cleaning and I did laundry this morning I washed it and it's still sitting in there and I have yet to dry it and that was eight hours ago um you don't have social interaction which is important you need that to maintain a, a type of sanity I don't have that so I find myself obsessing over pop culture things that don't matter as a way of reaching out and trying to understand the world around me that I'm not a part of. One is Orlando Bloom is married to Katy Perry, and I think I've heard that before and forgot about it back in a halcyon days of having a place to go during the day and having people to talk to, but now it upsets me, and I'm not exactly sure why. Probably because Katy Perry is still relevant today. Uh, musically, kind of. Maybe not so much. Uh, she's no Taylor Swift. Uh, but she dated that one English guy that was just really weird. He's like a very not like not that funny comedian and he wanted to like be a revolutionary so he kept talking about it all the time. And I don't know. But uh, then now she's married to Orlando Bloom. It's probably a great move for her, but I think of Orlando Bloom as being of the 2000s, the, the aughts. Not relevant to today. And if you're a beautiful, gorgeous person, can't you date someone that's relevant to now? A a, a person of your era? Like Orson Welles dating uh, uh, Greta Garbo? They were of their time. Orson Welles didn't date... uh, Myrna Loy? These are names I'm just throwing out, and I really don't know from what era any of them are. Uh... It's kind of like when Drew Barrymore dated Tom Green. Bizarre, made no sense, but at least they were of each other's times, so it seemed more acceptable. You have a a man from one decade swooping in on a woman from a, a later decade. It's offensive to me, and it upsets me. So that's in the People magazine in the bathroom that I bought for my daughter. 
uh, and I saw it, and I read it, and I reread it, and I read it over and over again about their mansion and where they live and what their lives are like, and I think it's obscene. Speaking of my bathroom, the cats have peed on the rugs. Now that I own a home, it's important that, as a single man owning a home, uh, for the benefit of the children and myself and pride, that... You want to be able to pay for extra things and feel proud of that. I've reached a point in my life where I can pay for a home uh, with a basement and an upstairs and whatnot. And also I can pay for rugs in the bathroom. And I bought those rugs. And I was proud of them. They're perfectly white, fluffy things that you can rub your toes into when you get out of the shower. And I was proud of them. They were comforting. It said something about where I am right now. And the cats have peed all over it. I tried washing one when the cats peed on one, and uh, it destroyed the rug. So now I'm just going to throw out the other rug. Also, there may or may not be inappropriate content for kids or really sensitive adults. It's public domain books, for the most part, that I'm reading, so um, I think it's probably pretty safe, and you should probably shouldn't worry about it. But I don't read any of this stuff before I start doing the podcast so I'm kind of learning about the book as you do and uh, if anything really cool happens that's sexual in nature or involves a lot of swearing I'm going to be pretty impressed just like you and maybe your kid in the back seat have you ever listened to a LibriVox recording and thought to yourself who are these people Who's the guy with the labored breath and the cats yelling in the background that takes the time to read Anne of Green Gables to me? Uh, I found myself more focused on the individual reading the book than the actual story itself. Sitting there studying, listening for little sounds. The cars outside the window. The creaks and groans from the floor above the head of a neighbor who lives upstairs in the apartment. That is what I would like to recreate here for you with Nuzzle House Audio. I am Glenn Nuzzles. Or should I say, two times Glenn, because I am doing back-to-back episodes right now, recording this one right after doing the previous episode. Uh, or another nickname could be Glenn Two Times. Uh, double Up Glenn. Well, let's move on. In the previous chapter, at Numeration, we uh, found out that Ernest might have to find a new place to squat. He's been floating around that house for weeks now, just milking that dad for all he's got. Uh, But that dad has to go take a vacation and possibly lose his job. Uh, He didn't want to do it. He said uh, he's been sucked in to Ernest's way of thinking and he says I'm going to fight the good fight and his way of fighting the good fight is just to sit back quietly in the safety of his own home and just write a book about his experiences but uh, Ernest said you should take the vacation and uh, the dad said but I don't want to and then Ernest said what about the money and so then that kind of you know if if you don't take the vacation they'll cut your sentence so The dad got sucked into it because he is a simple man. Rich people are the dumbest people on the face of the earth, and uh, he only hears the word money. So he acts on that. Avis uh, lost all of her friends, and that's a big deal. 
they touched on it lightly, but didn't really dive into how Avis is feeling any pain. This is the chapter of change. This is the, uh, out of the circular hero's journey, uh, where it's a transformative period and they have to see the pain that they're in and they, they're forced to move forward. They can't just rest on their laurels anymore. Uh, her pain is that she lost all of her friends and people aren't the same with her. They're a little bit more cold. Seems very small, but she is the narrator of the story and we know nothing about her and we don't even know what conflicts that she's actually experiencing in this story. So far, she's just more than happy to stand back and let the men experience life. Uh, who knows? I keep getting, like, I'm just very picky on this book, but maybe at some point in the future we'll actually get to know her a little bit and see what she's going through and why she's so dedicated to Ernest, except for the fact that he's so big and so perfect, uh, just a muscular Jesus that can have a debate and uh, crush his enemies in debate that, uh, that she wanted to write this entire manuscript that this entire thing is based on. Um, we'll find out. Maybe she'll get fleshed out later. Uh, we're kind of into the book now. We're at like chapter seven now, and I'm really waiting for the story to pick up. Uh, and the worst part of all of this, the thing that crushes everything, where you, you realize from this point on, you can't stay the same. You have to do something. You have to change. You have to make your own future, is when Ernest was given a job. A good job that would provide for him and Avis. Uh, and that's that's when you realize the twigs have broken. The road is turned. You can never go home again. He will not take that job. So let us start with chapter 7. And it's the first chapter name in a while that hasn't had an obscure, weird word as its title. This one's called The Bishop's Vision. And I hope it's as short as the last chapter. Because, uh, chapter five was ridiculous. The bishop is out of hand, Ernest wrote me. He is clear up in the air. Tonight he is going to begin putting to rights this very miserable world of ours. He is going to deliver his message. He has told me so, and I cannot dissuade him. Tonight, he is chairman of the IPH and will embody his message in his introductory marks. May I bring you to hear him? Of course, he is foredoomed to futility. It will break your heart. It will break his but for you, it will be an excellent object lesson. Oh, he's just training her more. This is like a weird Fifty Shades of Grey thing on a more annoying level than that book could ever be. You know, dear heart, how proud I am because you love me. And because of that, I want you to know my fullest value. I want to redeem in your eyes some small measure of my worthiness. And so it is. That my pride desires that you shall know my thinking is correct and right. My views are harsh. The futility of so noble a soul as the bishop will show you the compulsion for such harshness. So come tonight. Sad though this night's happening will be, I feel that it will but draw you more closely to me. 
The IPH held its convention that night in San Francisco. This convention had been called to consider public immorality and the remedy for it. Bishop Morehouse presided. He was very nervous as he sat on the platform, and I could see the high tension he was under. By his side were Bishop Dickinson, H.H. Jones, the head of the ethical department in the University of California. They have an ethical department? Weird. Mrs. W.W. Hurd, the great charity organizer. Philip Ward, the equally great philanthropist. And several lesser luminaries in the field of morality and charity. Oh, those poor guys. They even get named. Bishop Morehouse arose and abruptly began. Uh, I was in my broham. Okay. Oh, like a horse and carriage. Driving through the streets. It was nighttime. Now and then I looked through the carriage windows and suddenly my eyes seemed to be opened. And I saw things as they really are. At first I covered my eyes with my hands to shut out the awful sight. And then in the darkness the question came to me, What is to be done? What is to be done? A little later, the question came to me in another way. What would the master do? He calls God master? Or what's he talking about? And with the question, a great light seemed to fill the place, and I saw my duty sun clear, as Saul saw his on the way to Damascus. I stopped the carriage. I got out, and after a few minutes of conversation, persuaded two of the public women to get into the broham with me. If Jesus was right, then these two unfortunates were my sisters, and the only hope of their purification was in my affection and tenderness. This is sounding like a lot of excuses for what we all know probably really happened in there. Professional women in your broham? I live in one of the loveliest localities of San Francisco, bragging. The house in which I live cost $100,000, and its furnishings, books, and works of art cost as much more. The house is a mansion. No, it's a palace, wherein there are many servants. I never knew what palaces were good for. I had thought they were to live in, but now I know. I took the two women of the street to my palace, and they are going to stay with me. I hope to fill every room in my palace with such sisters as they. The jokes. I have to sit down. They're coming too fast. The audience had been growing more and more restless and unsettled. And the faces of those that... I'm sorry, I'm still laughing at the... I'm going to fill my house with prostitutes. (laughs) And... Uh, became more restless and unsettled. And the faces of those that sat on the platform had been betraying greater and greater dismay and consternation. And at this point, Bishop Dickinson rose and, with an expression of disgust on his face, fled from the platform and the hall. But Bishop Morehouse, oblivious to it all, his eyes filled with his vision, continued, colon, quote, Oh, sisters and brothers, in this act of mine I find the solution of all my difficulties. I didn't know what brohams were made for, being carried around apparently, but now I know they are made to carry the weak 
the sick and the aged. Aged. Probably aged. They are made to show honor to those that have lost the sense even of shame. I did not know what palaces were made for, but now I have found a use for them. The palaces of the church should be the hospitals and nurseries for those who have fallen by the wayside and are perishing. He made a long pause. Plainly overcome by the thought that was in him, and nervous how best to express it. I am not fit, dear brethren, to tell you anything about morality. I have lived in shame and hypocrisies too long to be able to help others, but my action with those women, sisters of mine, shows me that the better way is easy to find. To those who believe in Jesus and his gospel, there can be no other relation between man and man than the relation of affection. Love alone is stronger than sin, stronger than death. I therefore say to the rich among you that it is their duty to do what I have done and I am doing. Let each one of you who is prosperous take into his home some thief and treat him as a brother, some unfortunate, and treat her as a sister. And San Francisco will need no police force and no magistrates. The prisons will be turned into hospitals. And the criminal will disappear. Can you imagine going to a hospital that's actually a prison with those weird little cells and how like disturbing and depressing it would be? I wouldn't want that at all. And the criminal will disappear with his crime. We must give ourselves and not our money alone. We must do as Christ did. That is the message of the church today. We have wandered far from the master's teaching. We are consumed in our own flesh pots. We have put mammon, which we learned about, in the place of Christ. I have here a poem that tells the whole story. I should like to read it to you. It was written by an erring soul who yet saw clearly... It must not be mistaken for an attack upon the Catholic Church. It is an attack upon all churches, upon the pomp and splendor of all the churches that have wandered from the Master's path and hedged themselves in from his lambs. Here it is. The silver trumpets rang across the dome. The people knelt upon the ground with awe, and borne upon the necks of men I saw like some great god, the holy lord of Rome. Priest-like, he wore a robe more white than foam, and King Light swathed himself in royal red. Three crowns of gold rose high upon his head in splendor, and in light the Pope passed home. My heart stole back across wide waste of years to one who wandered by a lonely sea and sought in vain for any place of rest. Foxes have holes and every bird its nest. I, only I, must wander wearily and bruise my feet and drink wine salt with tears. The audience was agitated but unresponsive. Yet Bishop Morehouse was not aware of it. He held steadily on his way. And so I say to the rich among you, and to all the rich, that bitterly you oppress the master's lambs. 
You have hardened your hearts. You have closed your ears to the voices that are crying in the land, the voices of pain and sorrow that you will not hear, but that someday will be heard. And so I say, M dash, end quote. But at this point, H.H. Jones and Philip Ward, who had already risen from their chairs, led the bishop off the platform while the audience sat breathless and shocked. Ernest laughed harshly and savagely when he had gained the street. He had gained the street. Just like he went outside and stood in the street. His laughter, like even just walking outside, he's gaining it. He's commanding it. His laughter jarred upon me. My heart seemed ready to burst with suppressed tears. He has delivered his message, Ernest cried. The manhood and the deep-hidden, tender nature of their bishop burst out, and his Christian audience that loved him concluded that he was crazy. Exclamation point. Did you see them leading him so solicitously from the platform? There must have been laughter in hell at that spectacle. Nevertheless, it will make a great impression. What the bishop did and said tonight, I said. Think so? Ernest queried, mockingly. It'll make a sensation, I asserted. Didn't you see the reporters scribbling like mad while he was speaking? Not a line of which will appear in tomorrow's papers. I can't believe it, I cried. Just wait and see, was the answer. Not a line, not a thought that he uttered. The Daily Press, the Daily Suppressage. Oh, my God. <sighs> but the reporters, I objected. I saw them. Not a word that he uttered will be will see print. You have forgotten the editors. They draw their salaries for the policy they maintain. Their policy is to print nothing. That is a vital menace to the established. The bishop's utterance was a violent assault upon the established morality. It was heresy. They led him from the platform to prevent him from uttering more heresy. The newspapers will purge his heresy in the oblivion of silence. The press of the United States? It is a parasitic growth that battens on the capitalist class. Its function is to serve the established by molding public opinion. And right well it serves it. Let me prophesy. Tomorrow's papers will merely mention that the bishop is in poor health, that he has been working too hard, and that he broke down last night. The next mention, some days hence, will be to the effect that he is suffering from nervous prostration and has been given a vacation by his grateful flock. After that, one of the two things will happen. Either the bishop will see the error of his way and return from his vacation, a well man in whose eyes there are no more visions, or else he will persist in his madness. And then you may expect to see in the papers, couched pathetically and tenderly, the announcement of his insanity. After that, he will be left to hmm, gibber his visions to the padded walls. Now there you go too far, I cried out. In the eyes of society, it will truly be insanity, he replied. What honest man who is not insane would take lost women and thieves into his house to dwell with him? 
Oops, I clicked the button too quickly. To dwell with him sisterly and brotherly. True, Christ died between two thieves. But that is another story. Insanity? The mental processes of the man with whom one disagrees are always wrong. Therefore, the mind of the man is wrong. Where is the line between wrong mind and insane mind? It is inconceivable that any sane man can radically disagree with one's most sane conclusions. There is a good example of it in this evening's paper. Mary McKenna lives south of Market Street. She is a poor but honest woman, but is also patriotic. But she has erroneous ideas concerning the American flag and its protection it is supposed to symbolize. And here's what happened to her. Her husband had an accident and was laid up in the hospital three months in spite of taking and washing and she got behind in her rent. Yesterday they evicted her, but first she hoisted an American flag and from under its folds she announced that by virtue of its protection they could not turn her out onto the cold street. What was done? Was she arrested and arranged for insanity? Today she was examined by the regular insanity experts. She was found insane. She was consigned to the Napa Asylum. But that is far-fetched, I objected. I suppose I would disagree with everyone about the literary style of a book. They wouldn't send me to an asylum for that. Very true, he replied. But such divergence of opinion would constitute no menace to society. Therein lies the difference. The divergence of opinion on the parts of Mary McKenna and the bishop do menace society. What if all the poor people should refuse to pay rent and shelter themselves under the American flag. Landlordianism <laughs> would go crumbling. The bishop's views are just as perilous to society. Ergo, to the asylum with him. But I still refuse to believe. Wait and see, Ernest said, and I waited. Next morning I sent out for... All of the papers. So far, Ernest was right. Of course, there's not one spot where he's got any fallible moment. And even if he does have a fallible moment, it's going to be something like glorious and awesome. Not a word that Bishop Morehouse had, uh, had uttered was in print. Mention was made in one or two of the papers. Uh, he had been overcome by his feelings. Yet, the platitudes of the speakers that followed him were reported at length. Several days later, the brief... Announcement was made that he had gone away on vacation to recover from the effects of overwork. So far, so good. But there had been no hint of insanity, nor even of nervous collapse. Little did I dream the terrible road the bishop was destined to travel. The Gethsemane and crucifixion that Ernest had pondered about. And that's it. Okay, another beautiful short chapter. So what do we learn today? We learn that the bishop had a heartfelt message, though hilarious, was probably the closest thing to me actually feeling something for a character in this book. You've had the fairly dumb dad. You've had the Ernest who just floats around and is right all the time. Uh, and it's also vacuous. And you've had Avis, 
who almost never has anything to say or do or anything. Uh, she just serves as a object lesson for Ernest. So the bishop giving his heartfelt speech for some weird reason, I think because my, my expectations and standards are just real, real low at this point. Uh, I actually felt a little bit as I was reading it, just a little hint of feeling for a character in this book because he is a person that apparently has gone through hell with Ernest, guiding him through it. Uh, and they never really talk about that, so you never have to really think about it. You just have to assume that he's seen things that a priest will never see. Uh, but he gave a speech, which, again, was hilarious, because he just started picking up prostitutes and wants to fill his house with prostitutes. And knowing the real world as we do, you can say all you want, but that's just not good. Uh, we have read enough news about... Uh, bishops and priests to have a better idea at this point a hundred years later uh, but he was expressing something of uh, kind of a desperation to make the world better kind of clinging on to his original ideals and trying to work his original ideals into this new world that Ernest is painting for them and uh, he was let off the stage and Again, for the millionth time, Ernest was right. Uh, his speech was not reported, but all the protests to his speech were reported at length. Ugh. So, I'm hoping that at some point we get out of this uh, drudgery of Ernest just being right all the time and all these situations being painted where Ernest calls it and is right uh, are very contrived and um, I would like to see something happen in this story. Uh, maybe someone shoots a gun, or Ernest is actually taken down a notch, and Avis has to deal with her perfect man not being so perfect. Just something, any kind of conflict. So far there's no conflict, just one person being right and everyone else suffering. I would like to see a, a conflict with our hero, Ernest. And... Uh, for God's sake, let's hope chapter 8 is that for us. But at least the chapter is short, so that was nice. I hope you've enjoyed the reading, and uh, maybe you'll come back. Thanks. <laughs>